Welcome to the BNP Realm Podcast. Thanks again for joining me. This is your host, Brian, as always. Well, BNP are for being perturbed when you lack focus. That's what this week has been all about for me, folks. Yeah, I think if social media is an indication, and from what I'm hearing from others, a lot of us have been feeling kind of perturbed this week, a little bit angry, angsty, frustrated. And so that opening song was Jim Morrison of The Doors singing about waking up in the morning, having himself a beer. The future is uncertain and the end is always near. But let it roll, baby. Let it roll all night long. And that's what I'm trying to do. This podcast will continue regardless of my state of mind or lack of one. So I find myself now at another new spot, just south of the park golf course on a little bluff overlooking the river. It's just north of the other spot where the water can be heard, where I'm going to go record the main clip for this episode. And I actually prefer that spot better. Um, A, there's no, this is out in the open so you get some wind. You can see cars, and I can hear some construction crews across the way. But this is still a nice spot, because getting outside in the nature is nice. But this week, folks, has left me wondering a lot about what the future will bring, and feeling impatient with myself for not bearing down and doing any writing. But I just have so many thoughts, and they're all so confused and jumbled together, and I think that's okay. I think that's where we all are at. But maybe I'll just speak for myself. That's definitely where I'm at. I've noticed there's a real tendency, and maybe I'll save this for the the big, I'll save this for the main wrap, but there's there's a tendency right now for people to, because of the uncertainty of things, for people to latch on to, this is the way it is, this is true, that's not true, I just can't do that right now. I can do it for a day or two, and then I get out of it. So that's what I'm going to go downstream a little bit and rap about and uh, enjoy the show. Um, Of course, after the main rap, you'll be getting two more chapters. Chapters 11 and 12 of The Teacher and the Tree Man. I believe that's right, 11 and 12. Or is it 12 and 13? Yeah, I think that's right, 11 and 12. And uh, they're very apropos for today's topic, but I'm going to get to that in a bit. So enjoy the show, and thanks again for joining me. Okay, so the following clips that you'll hear are from the This Youngian Life podcast, April 9th episode, episode 106, title, When Everything Changes, Is There Opportunity in Crisis? This was an excellent podcast. Um, It usually is. And I found this one worth putting in to use as the backbone for this episode to help me sort of sort out my thoughts a little bit. So we'll hear one clip, then you'll hear me talk about that clip, and then another longer clip, and then me talk about that. Okay, enjoy. I'm noticing people beginning to self-organize in two different camps people who seem to be able to respond 
with a kind of integrated personality that generates creativity, creative acts, creative responses, and another camp that is feeling deeply hopeless and is trying to substitute the old life with some other kind of an ordering process to eliminate uncertainty, trying to excessively prescribe how to think and how to act. So this idea of moving forward into this creative relationship to the self or regressing backwards into whatever kind of a structured, determined system that can restore a sense of safety. Now, those two things may be in each person to some degree, but I'm noticing camps begin to settle out in those two categories, which is worth tracking, I think. So it's interesting. Uh, you're, you know, the meaning I'm making of what you're saying is uh, the theme of how we make meaning, that we need narratives, we need storylines. And if perhaps we can stay in the don't know and the uncertainty, uh, we may find some creative wellsprings within ourselves or our immediate surrounds and uh, be able to respond uh, proactively in some way, uh, internally and perhaps externally. If we don't have that, uh, we may revert to internal and external sort of authoritarian structures and narratives. Uh, that that this is, and there are those out there. Uh, there are conspiracy theories and all kinds of things. In order to have some kind of meaning-making structure uh, that's often external rather than internal. Yeah, and you know that that goes to Jung's uh, religious function of the psyche, right? That our psyche is built to need meaning, mm -hmm. and that the need for meaning and the drive to find meaning is a fundamental ordering principle of the human psyche. And where traditional meanings have been swept away, where the things that kind of kept us tethered to an orderly life are suddenly taken off the table, we will try to fill that vacuum. And one place that we might reach will be a kind of authoritarianism whether it's kind of self-imposed or we reach to find it out in the collective. And it can be an inner authoritative figure. Absolutely. Yes, we regress back to some kind of uh, a belief in a set of rules which has never really been adequately questioned or somehow comes from a very early part of our lives that can over time be rather suffocating, although in the short term it feels relieving. Okay, I'm down here by the river, the creek, the creek, and I'm going to chat about the clips that, well, I just played, clip one. And I want to relate it to the Teacher and the Tree Man chapters you're going to hear today, which, without spoiling too much, take place on the eve of the Iraq war in 2003. So, it connects to the clip you just heard, which, we're talk which was talking about two camps. 
There are two camps that the uh, speaker said he has seen. The first camp is one which is able to respond with integrated personality that generates creativity. And camp number two is a feeling of deeply being deeply hopeless, trying to substitute our old life with some kind of ordering process to eliminate uncertainty and trying to prescribe how to think and how to act. And in that, the chapters, you're going to hear the characters kind of wrestling, I think, a little bit between those two camps. What I want to bring up, though, in relation to the, uh, the story, is my frustration right now with well, a lot of things, but in particular, it's really weird to me because I feel there is a... There are so many divides going on right now in our culture, and it's so hard to figure it all out. It's so hard to know what is correct. And maybe the answer is, as I said back in February, I believe, or maybe that was March. I don't know. We don't know. You don't know. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to create these... We feel uncertain. Everybody's uncertain. What the fuck is going on? Where is the future taking us? I don't have a job anymore. What, where am I going to get money from? Is money going to even exist? All these big questions, these deep, deep questions. What is the point of life? You know, I mean, for me, they go really, 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 really deep. Why am I here? Why did I have this intuition to quit my job so I can take this trip? And then suddenly, even though everything seemed to be lining up perfectly, all of a sudden, everything's been put on hold. Why? 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 You know? These are deep questions. And if you're a person who doesn't have them right now, then good on you. Good on you. You've got a good situation. But I don't think there are too many people out there that aren't wrestling with these deep questions. And... The thing is, is like, sometimes you ask a question to the universe. I've, believe me, folks, I've done this universe. What should I do? And the answer doesn't come right away. The answer is be patient. In our modern culture, man, that is the one thing we, I mean, I can tell you, I'll just speak for myself, but I think we can all say this. Our modern culture sucks at being patient. Like, we are not good at being patient. You know, we're a go, 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 get up, go, get up, go, go, get, go, get going, get moving, get on with it, get on, get going, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You got to work. You got to keep going, keep going, keep going. And now all of a sudden we're like, everything is just like, stop. And so I don't have the answers. I do not have the answers. I want to write everyone. I want to write. I really want to write, but I can't write right now. I think the reason I can't write is because I've been trained to write in an authoritative way. This is the way it should be. You know, I got into this medium thing where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to study medium mastery. I paid $200 to study this course on how to master using the, this medium.com. And I can make, you know, $500 to $1,000 a month. And I thought, oh, I'd be doing that, right? And as I'm reading all the articles, everybody writes in this kind of authoritative tone. And I got to the point where I was like, fuck this. 
who is this person to tell me that they know, you know? And so I'm going to start writing from this place of, I don't fucking know. I'm trying just like you're trying to figure this out. But there's a part of me. I've, I'm sitting here on this riverside. And I've there are these tall grasses. And I came down and I flattened them out. There's a part of me that this whole week I've just been wanting to like do nothing. But then there's this other part of me that's like, you've had two weeks of vacation. You need to get back to it. What are you going to do with your life? You have no money coming in. What are you going to do? You know, so there's this split personality going on. And so when this guy talks about these two camps, I, I'm seeing myself with feet in both of those camps. Like one camp is like, relax, let everything flow, and things start flowing. But then the other camp is like, get on with it. Hurry up. You got to do something. How are you going to help? You've been waiting too long, Brian. You've missed your chance. You're 47. All these other people have done so much with their lives. What have you done? You've been sitting around doing nothing, you know? So that's the state I'm in right now. And it's really hard. It's really fucking hard just to do two podcasts a week, which is my one thing I've committed to for this until June. And I can read my chapters and put those out there. And like I did on Sunday, where I was like, I need a break. And that's fine. And I might, like I've said before, I might just do that and be like, everybody, sorry, but this podcast, there's one point to this podcast is to get my book out there. And I'm throwing everything out there in the front, stuff that I want to talk about. But right now I feel like everybody is just chatter, 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 chitter, 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 chatter. Everybody's throwing out all their fucking nonsense and I don't want to contribute to it, you know? And that's the thing about Medium, too. They're like, this guy that I took this training from is, you need to write three to five, you know, stories every day or every week. You know, five is better, three is, you know, and it's like, he had all this great advice. It was working for him. But as I was reading all these articles, I just realized, like, there is such information overload that I don't want to just, like, it's garbage, okay? And I'm not saying all these articles people wrote are garbage, but... If all of us, if 7 billion people are out there going, me, 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 listen to this, listen to this, listen to this. And it's like, how do you choose? How do you, how do you, so, you know, these writers, like, uh, let's, a guy who I've never actually read any of his books, but like Thomas Pinchon, right? He's written, or I'll go J.D. Salinger, right? He wrote The Catcher in the Rye. All right, Pinchon's another one who's written only a few books in his life. Like, there's a part of me... I've only written one novel and maybe, maybe like, that's what I want to do. You know, like I don't want to be Stephen King and write a novel every year. And I'm not saying that all those, you know, I think a lot of his novels are great, but how does the guy in the future decide? I mean, I guess people can say this is the best one. Um, the point is, is like, I'm trying to get down to the deep, deep, actual what is the reason for writing and it's not just you know what is the reason for podcasting i'm not doing this for money you know um this is going on to a day way more different topic than i thought it was going to but i'm having trouble focusing and i'm trying to i'm trying to put out a podcast like a professional podcast it's like here's what i want to talk about and here are the things and i could go home and write it but I'm just not in the right mindset for it. I'm just not. And so I'm going to in this clip here. And uh, that'll be good. 
So and then I'm going to respond to the second clip and just see where it goes. And I'm going to put it out there. And, um, you know, I, I don't feel like at this point I want to put out stuff that people get something out of. I want stuff to be out there that it's not just me like here's me, you know. So and that's what I'm thinking about with my writing, too. Like if I'm going to write something, I can't just be like Brian, 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 like fuck that. You know, like I want to do something that's of value to the world, you know. And so I don't want to just put a podcast out that's just basically me yakking about bullshit. But I'm thinking maybe people can relate to this. I don't know. Just this feeling. I mean, I don't know if you guys are feeling it, but maybe you're listening to this from the future and you can you can look back and say, man, that must have been a tough time. But I don't have work right now. OK. And like I don't I got no stress right now as far as like that goes. But there's just so much collective stress right now. And it. As far as work, I mean, if I want to get down to it myself, like, there's a lot of stress not knowing what I'm going to do next because nothing feels right right now. I, I told myself this week I'd start writing these short stories, and then I'm like, well, maybe it's the inner saboteur that's stopping me. But I kind of follow, like, what what feels right? What should I do right now? And this morning it was like I was going to get up and do the podcast from home, but it was like, no, go on a bike ride and do the podcast from the Riverside. And that's what I'm doing right now. So... Um, I'm trying to follow my, my instincts on stuff, but I'm even doubting that. And that's, that's the hardest thing for me. Like I can have all the doubts in the world about the culture. Cause I've had those for, you know, since I was in my mid twenties, since the 1990s, you know, half my life, I felt like this culture is completely whacked and I don't need to pay attention to it too much as far as what to do with my life. But even my own internal guidance right now feels like, is this really correct? And so and that's where I'm like, I'm just, I know I'm really deep in it right now. I'm really deep in that process of like discovery and what the fuck is going on and just be patient, but I can't be patient. And so just confusion. So this is the confusion episode. Okay. So I have no answers and I'm not going to say anything that I've said to you right now is of any value to you, but that's where I'm at. All right. Next clip. I'd like to turn some attention before we finish to the dark side of this suspension of normalcy. Because in an attempt to minimize the negative effects of all of this disruption, some people will develop particularly problematic thoughts and behavior in order to create a sense of security. We're beginning to see some thrumming of this in state and federal leaders. We may see evidence of this just in family systems. So there are three categories of concern for me. One is the rise of authoritarianism. The other is a rise of destructiveness. And the third is a rise of conformity. So the authoritarian archetype contains both sadistic and masochistic elements in it. There's a strong impulse to want to gain control over other people in a bid to impose a kind of order on the world. But it also wishes to submit 
to the control of some kind of a superior force which can be in the guise of an abstract ideal. So this can happen inside of us where we notice ourselves wanting to be authoritarian towards our own inner world, to gain control, excessive control over our feelings, over our bodies, over our families, or even over our apartments. And we can see this happening in some of our political leaders. This talk of activating the military and perhaps inducing a kind of martial state if people won't be obedient adequately. That feels like a logical solution and the fear of disorder gets to a certain pitch. The destructive archetype has something that is similar to the sadistic which to gain, wish to gain control over something. But in the destructive archetype, the personality wants to destroy something that it cannot bring under its control. So we have to watch out for this desire to ruin or destroy people, careers, institutions that feel like they are not submitting to being controlled in this time. The thing that I'm noticing most frequently, both internally and in the culture, is the archetype of conformity, where there's an enormous pressure to incorporate normative beliefs and thought processes, which prevents people from having genuine free thinking because the freedom of thought provokes anxiety. One of the ways that that can happen is that we're listening to media and any kind of suggestion that a media figure makes in order to keep oneself safe is suddenly grabbed onto as an absolute truth and is propagated throughout the culture. Something happened recently where our national leader threw out a couple of names of medications that should be mixed together and, and that that would be a likely solution, you know, for the coronavirus. And people began to grab at this medication and people began to make themselves a bit sick, tossing everything inside of themselves or tossing it into their families. And this idea that one must conform. The other really troubling thing that I'm seeing is a rise of vigilante behavior. There was an article in the New York Times yesterday in a small town in Maine where two strangers were just housing in a hotel and the town had been whipped up into so much anxiety that they began to harass these people for walking on the street. And finally, a bunch of vigilantes cut down a tree to block these people into the hotel so they couldn't escape. And there's a feeling of approval of that kind of behavior. We're seeing people being assaulted on the streets for having allegedly brought this into the world. So in these three categories of authoritarianism, destructiveness, and conformity, which are all the dark sides of how people can react to all of this suspension of normalcy and this opportunity for freedom, I'm noticing a problem with how people are managing their anxiety. 
One of the ways that people can cope with their anxiety rather poorly, we call projective identification. How I'm seeing that playing out very strongly with my friends and some of my family members is that they will be highly agitated, highly upset, while I'm feeling very, very calm and rational and frankly, very robust. My friend or family member will continue to escalate the level of intensity, assuming that my calmness is somehow a failure to grasp the gravity of the situation or somehow a failure to comply with the health standards that people are recommending. And until I display some signal that I'm as agitated as they are, they will continue to try to push that anxious feeling into me with this fantasy that that means I'll be compliant and therefore somehow be kept safer. This process is being used in the public health system where increasingly alarming messages are being distributed as a way of trying to create fear in the general public so that there can be some guarantee of compliance. I understand that is a way of manipulating a collective field. The downside is there is always a shadow to that, that once we begin to create an enormous amount of fear in the collective, that fear does not just flow into the channel of compliance with health regulations. That fear can flow into all kinds of other reservoirs of ideas and behaviors, some of which can be highly, highly destructive and frightening. So respond to wisdom, but be determined to create a field of calm temperance around you and to refuse to be infected by the feelings of horror that are being forced into us as a way of trying to guarantee compliance, either from friends, family, or from the media. I think that is very important. Okay, that one is a lot to take in. It's a little longer clip, but I'm going to try to stay focused this time a little more. So I'm going to just look at here what he said. And kind of, re I, re I actually typed all this out. So the three categories, I'm going to respond to each. So the rise of authoritarianism. And the impulse, as he said, is to want to gain control over others in a bid to impose a kind of order over the world. But it also wishes to submit to the control to some kind of superior of a superior force, which can be in the guise of an abstract ideal. This can happen inside of us, where we notice ourselves wanting to be authoritarian to our own inner world, to gain excessive control over our feelings, over our bodies, over our families and our apartments. And... Um, I, I can, I'm going to speak for myself. Um, I can definitely see that in myself where I'm wanting to control my sense of just frustration. Like I put out on my Facebook page today, like I, 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 I've been wanting to just say this like all week, like fuck off everyone, you know, like, and so I put it out on my page. I find it was like, fuck off. I said this to everyone. I was like, Social media, fuck off, or something, and I want to say that to everyone or something, and then I left it up there for about five, maybe 15 minutes, and I wrote another little comment underneath it to try to explain. A couple people responded, 
and I responded to them, and then I decided to delete it, which is really unusual for me. I usually don't delete my own threads, but I just thought, like, I don't need to put that out there. But at the same time, like, as I responded to one of my friends, like, I'm kind of sharing this because I think a lot of people are feeling this right now. Like, everyone is so over the top in their, this authoritarianism, this, like, this is the way it is, you must submit with all of their thoughts and stuff because everyone's freaking out, okay? And if, again, if you're not freaking out, good on you. I'm not talking to you right now. <laughs> I'm freaking out, and I, I just, uh, every day, I kind of page through my social media thread without responding to a lot of stuff, and I look at it, and I can tell you, this week has been a collective freak out. People have been under these, you know, the, the rules of staying inside and social distancing and all this for about a month now. And this is what I, I, I kind of predicted this. I think a lot of psychologists and people who pay attention to how the human mind works were saying that, you know, the first few weeks will be like a honeymoon. Then after a couple of weeks, it'll start building up. And by week four, it's going to erupt. And um, there's some other reasons I say that this week is the week that came out, but I'll stop there. Anyway. This has been a tough week on social media and in the collective. And, um, yeah. So that's the authoritarianism. And, yes, okay, step number two, destructive archetype. Similar to the sadistic wish to gain control over something, but this archetype, the personality, wants to destroy something that it cannot bring under its control. We have to watch out for this desire to destroy people, careers, institutions, that feel like they are not submitted to being controlled at this time. And I will add friends to this. Friends. Like, we don't want to destroy our friends in our desire to have control. Um, and people, you know, like, I, I, I am well aware, well aware that I have ideas that go against the mainstream. It's been this way since I was nine years old, okay? Even, you know, all my life. All my life, I've always walked to the beat of my own drummer and been very confident in that. And so I'm well aware that, you know, my ideas are not accepted. One of my own frustrations right now is that, I think I've brought this up in previous podcasts, but I'll just briefly refer to this. Some of the things I've said that, hey, if, we, if our culture does this A, then B will happen, and everybody had been like, no, Brian, don't worry, that B won't happen, and then B happened. Like, that's happened repeatedly, so now I'm at this point where I'm like, I want to be heard, you know? I want people to say, you know, like, but it's still happening. It's still happening. So at this point, I've got to really, I don't know, it's hard, It's a hard place to be in because I'm not sharing information because I want, like... I want it to be right. It's like, for example, let's go back to the, the, the book that you're going to hear, The Iraq War. In the book, you'll hear basically my own thoughts on the on the topic in, in, expressed to the characters, but it was like, this is going to be a disaster post-war. I mean, I think you already heard that chapter. Anyway, um, like, that was what I, I, I was saying back in the time. Like, no, we're, of course we're going to go in and easily defeat the Iraqi army. We already destroyed most of it in the 1990s. But this idea that we're going to go in there and be treated as heroes and then, like, we're going to get out of there, that's a bunch of nonsense. It's a, it was either – I think it was a lie. Personally, it was a lie. 
I think they knew they weren't going to get out of there, and I think they knew they were going to set up, you know, bases and all this and that. But, um, and yet, I don't know how many people in my life were like, "Oh, Brian, you're just being paranoid," blah blah blah. And yet, is the, is America still in Iraq? Yes. I don't know how many troops, but we're still there. We still have bases there, and this is 17 years later. So. That's where my frustration is. Um, and again, though, I'll go back to what I said before. I don't know where things are going right now. I can tell you a lot of different predictions I have. Like one of my strongest predictions like that I, I can say I feel like is probably at the start of this year, I thought it was a 50-50. Now I think it's like a 70 to 75-25. I think America is going to break up. I think America's. I don't think America is going to last this decade. And I think it might actually be before 2025. Um, the timing of it is hard to say, but I just don't, I don't see the country holding together. And I think a lot of people can kind of sense that now. I mean, I'm hearing that kind of conversation in a lot more mainstream sources, but, um, I remember mentioning that back in the, around 2000 and people told me I was crazy. Like America would never break up. So, you know, but I think now just by the looking at the way the politics are going and the, the states are kind of, you know, banding together in the Northeast and the West coast. Like I just, I think now the writing is kind of on the wall and I actually think it's probably a good thing. Um, who knows? It depends on how it, how the process takes place. But to me, I think we need smaller, like, I don't think these national, these states there, it's just too, it's too big. It's too big. Um, what I, what I, my vision of a beautiful world, again, I didn't know I was going to go here, but my vision of an ideal world would be one where you've got a, a collective agreement, like, okay, we, we are all human. We're all, we all share this planet together. So there are certain things we can't do. Like we can't go to war with each other. Um, we can't be, you know, it's hard because, you know, we can't be polluting, you know, like we have to think about the planet as a whole. But as far as how each country does things within that framework, like I think there should be a lot more freedom to that. Um, and I'll speak to that real quick because this is a positive thing I heard um, from one of the, the YouTubers I watch. He lives in Costa Rica, and he was talking about how down there, like they've had very few cases of coronavirus, but everybody's kind of like the the president of that that country in Costa Rica actually does like a Facebook live. I think he said like once a week where people just ask him questions and he responds. And it's like, you know, now it's a smaller country, but that's the thing. That's the thing. That's why smaller is better. I think, you know, I don't know how many people live in Costa Rica, but you know, it might even be bigger than what I think is feasible, but maybe in this modern world, it's a good, a good size. And obviously with uh, technology, I don't think we have to go back to the, there's that number that I think Dunbar's number of 150 people is the most people we can know in a tribe was 100. I don't think we have to go back to that level with, with technology, you know, with the ability to connect over broad spaces. I think we can be a bigger collective than 150 people. But, um, you know, and as he was saying, basically that people down there, they trust their government, you know, and I'm sorry, but, you know, that's that sounds like a utopia in a way like. But I can't – I've actually been rather uncritical here of the Japanese government in a lot of ways. Like I have my critiques, but I'm actually glad I'm here rather than the U.S. where right now I could get a ticket for sitting outside next to a creek because this park is closed or whatever. Um, you know, the park is not closed here. They don't do that. So 
that's that. Okay, let's get to the next part of this thing. So that's eh, destructive. I feel the destructive in me in the sense of like, I want to destroy all these systems that have been just authoritarian and driving me crazy. Um, anyway, uh, it's, it's interesting. He didn't really go into that. He says, you know, we have to watch out for this desire to destroy people that feel like they are not submitting to being controlled in this time. Like, I want to destroy the things that are trying to control me. You know, and that includes my friends and family and people that are saying, like, you got to do this, you got to do that. I'm like, no, I don't have to do any of that stuff. And they're like, well, what about the safety of others? I'm like, well, maybe, like, what you think you know about how I'm to avoid getting this disease is incorrect, you know? Maybe maybe the things I'm doing are more than enough to keep me healthy. Anyway, all right, number three, archetype of conformity. And he says this is a thing he notices the most frequently in the culture. Um, there is an enormous pressure to incorporate normative beliefs and thought processes, which prevents people from having genuine free thinking because the freedom of thought provokes anxiety. And uh, one of the ways that we... I want to stop there real quick because I recognize this. I, when I heard, first heard him say this live, when I listened to this podcast, I thought, oh my, Brian, that is important for you to understand because what I do by presenting freedom of thought I think of it to myself as offering people an opportunity to relax, but it provokes anxiety in others. Because people have, like, if you've already, if you've dialed in on this is the way it is, and someone out here is like, oh, maybe, hmm, what about this? Then all of a sudden that, you know, that this is the way it is loosens its ground, you know what I mean? So it's an earthquake, an intellectual earthquake in a sense. So I'm like that to people, and I never really thought about it that way. And I'm sorry to everyone that I've <laughs> done that to, but um, freedom of thought is kind of, well, I think it's really important right now. Um, and again, it's hard as hell. It's really hard. Okay. And then he says, one of the ways that that can happen is we are listening to media and any kind of suggestion that media makes in order to keep oneself, uh, I missed the line there, is suddenly grabbed onto as an absolute truth and is propagated throughout the culture. And that, that's where I've been the most frustrated because living in Japan as I do, the media I intake is a lot different than the mainstream media. I don't really pay it to, like I don't really follow the U.S. mainstream media. I've actually put the CNN app on my phone just to get more of a pulse of that. Um, and I've got to get rid of the the, the thing that the, the what do they call the notifications because it would be like notification blah, 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 blah. 300 coronavirus cases in southeast Pakistan. I'm like, why do I need to know this right now? Um, but I've been following, you know, just to get a and I've added a few other news apps just with the notifications off, but, um, Al Jazeera, English, BBC, World News, anyway, but in general, like, I, I, I follow, you guys, I pay attention to so many different sources of media, some are really left-wing, some are right, kind of right-wing, some are, you know, we're freedom channels, some are, woo-woo, some are mainstream, some are sciencey. I mean, I, that's the thing. Like, some are the birds. I've made a joke about this before, but, like, I actually do consider Mother Nature as one of my media sources, you know? 
um, or meditating, listening to my own, you know, inner inner world is also a source of information for me. So um, I'm going to one of the posts I want to write is talking about media diet. I actually want to make this kind of a regular post. And um, my main idea there is having a balanced diet and, you know, being like when my parents have taught me, like when they travel, they try stuff, you know. And yet I feel like in our modern world, our media is sort of telling us this is media you should pay attention to. My friend was just posting today that, like, apparently Facebook is now going to post stuff that, um, oops, I'm not, I don't know, what did she say? She posted an article about how Facebook will now be warning people if something is inaccurate information. And um, people seem to think that Facebook knows what is safe and true. Yeah, that's it. I mean, like, so Facebook, this private company, and, and that's the thing, like, uh, I won't go into that too far. i got to stop this because this is getting too long. But, um, you know, there's so many questions right now. So many so many boundaries have been kind of broken. And I was just going to say that the, the thing is, Facebook, we consider this private company, and so, all oh, they can do what they want. But it's the public forum now, especially now that we're all locked down. We're not even allowed to get to, we can't get together in a group, you know, First Amendment right to peacefully assemble is, is gone right now. You know, just think about that for a second. And okay, it's temporary, right? But once we get, once the thing is down, then all of a sudden, like, are we still going to have to social distance? And I'll say one more thing about that, about social distancing. Just to ponder, just to ponder, okay? This is not me saying this is what it is for, but to ponder this. Facial recognition. If everybody's in a crowd, it's harder for the facial recognition software to work. If everybody's separated by, what, six feet, even four feet, oh, we're going to reduce it. Everybody can be closer, four feet, you know? Facial recognition works a lot better. I mean, this is something I've seen on several different outlets, people talking about this. So just think about that, you know? Um, and then people say, well, if you don't have anything wrong, you're not doing anything wrong, then what do you have to worry about? And it's like, well, yeah, but when does it, when does what you're doing, like here's the one I was thinking about today, and I'll close on this. I believe for my own health, like I'm seeing now more and more, like I'm going to do a little survey, but I'm seeing more and more people wearing masks when they're out driving, walking, and biking here in Japan, more and more. And I'm sure it's happening in the West, too. But, you know, in Japan, like, people wear masks here during the winter all the time. But usually when you get to this season, they just aren't wearing them. But now I'm seeing people biking. Um, I took a photo from my blog back in April of a guy biking with one. But that took, like, an hour to get that guy. But now I would say, oh, this is Bernie Sanders. Sorry, Brian went to say back in March, not back in April. Back at the start of March, he took that photo. Back to the podcast. Half the bikers, at least half, I'll do a little survey on the way home, but at least half, I would say, are wearing masks when they're biking. And, like, that's fine if that's what you want to do, all right? But what happens if all of a sudden they're like, okay, to, present, to prevent this spread of this virus, you must wear a mask when you go outside of your house? Well, honestly, I don't believe, I, I, I don't, I will say to myself, I don't, I don't believe that's true, okay, for one. I just don't believe it's true. And two, like, I believe that, and this is science stuff here, but it's also ex direct experience stuff, but I believe that 
we strengthen ourselves by getting dirty, by, by, by breathing, by, you know, it's an immunity thing. You build your immunity stuff up by allowing yourself to be in closer access to the natural world. You know, like when you cut yourself off from being able to breathe all the air, then yeah, you might be cutting out things that have negative things, but you're also cutting out positive things. Okay. And when you allow a few of those negative things in there, that builds up your immunity, your body. You're not trusting your body. You're saying, I must be protected all the time. But so the, my point is, is what if it create this law that you, that for yourself, you're like, this doesn't make sense to me logically, my experience from the science that I know, but there's this law and I must follow it. So again, just ask yourself these kind of questions because you all people always say, well, if you're not doing anything wrong, well, what if what you're doing that you feel is right is all of a sudden determined tomorrow to be sorry you can't do that anymore? You know? So those are the things I think we should all be talking about, thinking about. Um, and I think this is a good podcast. I don't know. Maybe you don't. <laughs> but maybe you do. All right. Maybe. I don't know. I love you all. Thanks for listening. Uh, please enjoy the next two chapters of the book and reflect upon that era back when we all questioned the government. Just reflect upon that as you listen to these two chapters. All right. Adios. Bye for now. Chapter 11. Outside the Box. After a year of lying low, Lucas decided to speak his mind at his job. He raised questions with the other teachers, mostly about the plan to go to war in Iraq, but also about his disgust with other topics, such as the ever-increasing powers the federal government was granting itself in the name of fighting terrorism. The pot boiled over one lunchtime in late January, when Lucas asked Wendy, Danielson, McCollum, and Rialto, So, did you all watch Bush's State of the Union last night? Of course, McCollum said. It is our duty as American citizens. I agree, said Danison. I watched it, sure, Wendy said, in a tone that made Lucas wonder. Me too, Rialto said. Why, Paul? Well, it was pretty outrageous. How so, said McCollum. I thought it was his best one yet. The president's really coming into his own. Yeah, ever since 9-11, he's had a very strong, consistent vision, Wendy said. Oh, boy, said Lucas. This wasn't going to be easy. What, Paul? Rialto asked. Where do I start? Lucas said. Let's ignore all the issues he addressed, except for the one that is on everybody's mind, Iraq. Okay, Danielson said. What's there to discuss? McCollum said. It's pretty clear. The military solution is the best, and I think only one, that jerks like Hussein pay attention to. Clearly he is a threat to his neighbors and us. Is that so? Lucas said, blood beginning to boil. None of those neighbors have said as much, so I have to wonder. But I guess if our president tells us Saddam's Iraq is comparable to Soviet Russia or Nazi Germany, then we just have to blindly accept his words and... He's clearly a tyrant, Wendy said. I'm not going to disagree, Lucas said. But how much power does he really have? After all, most of his military and civilian infrastructure was destroyed in the 1991 Gulf War. Seems to me our politicians and media are doing everything they can to hype up how dangerous he really is, no matter the reality. That's not what our intelligence is showing, Paul, McCollum said. Was he smiling as smugly as Rialto now? But even if we were to concede your point, 
All it takes is for him to give one weapon of mass destruction to a terrorist to wreak havoc on our soil that will make 9-11 look like a walk in the park. Absolutely, Wendy said, and Lucas could see the tears beginning to form in her eyes. Damn, Lucas thought. He didn't want to hurt Wendy, but he also had to question anybody who supported the plan for war. So he said, two things. First, according to the CIA and State Department, there is absolutely no link between secular Iraq and Islamist al-Qaeda. Second, we can't just attack a country because someday it might possess WNDs that they might pass on to others who might attack us. This preemptive strike doctrine is a real slippery slope. Good point, Danielson said. There are an awful lot of mites there. I think you've got your head in the sand, McCollum said. We know Hussein used biological weapons on his own people in the 80s. Yeah, when we supported him, Lucas said. We were the ones who had our heads in the sand at the time, looking the other way and even blaming Iran. Well, maybe we realized our mistake, Rialto said. I don't buy it, Lucas said. If we did, why doesn't the administration, not to mention the corporate media, ever bring up our complicity and express remorse? The past is the past, McCollum said. It no longer matters. You may not have noticed, Paul, but the world changed on 9-11. We can no longer afford to be passive. We must act. Exactly, Wendy said. We have no choice. Totally disagree, Lucas said. We always have a choice. And Jack, how can you say the past no longer matters while you use the 9-11 attacks, which happened in the past, to support your position? Before McCollum could answer, Danielson said, there is ample time to let the UN inspectors do their work. And besides, it's not like we have much support from the world community. That doesn't matter, McCollum said. The world community was not attacked on 9-11. Why do you keep bringing up the past? Lucas asked. There is no connection between that horrendous day and Iraq. So you believe, McCollum said. You may be wrong, you know. Give me some proof, and I'll gladly admit my error, Lucas said. You're also ignoring the rule of law, McCollum said. Iraq has repeatedly violated the UN security resolutions. We can't ignore that. We do in the case of Israel, Lucas said. What does Israel have to do with it, Wendy said. They are the only true friend we've got in that part of the world. Perhaps, Lucas suggested, our connections with Israel have more to do with this plan to attack Iraq than we're ever likely to hear about. Sounds like you're masking some crazy anti-Semitic conspiracy nonsense. Don't go there, Jack, Lucas said. Fine, McCollum said. I won't go there. But I will say, listening to you rant just sounds like treasonous unreasoning. Lovely language, Jack, Lucas said, face turning red, but total bullshit. This drew a glance from Danielson, which implored Lucas to calm down, but he couldn't. The problem with guys like you, Jack, is you have a narrow definition of what patriotism is. Support all military adventures, justified or not. No, I love this country, and that's why I'm speaking up. I feel this potential war in Iraq might sink us. I'm confused, Wendy said. You started this conversation by saying how weak Iraq was. So how could war with them possibly sink a country as rich and powerful as ours? It makes no sense. You're right, Wendy. That doesn't make sense. No, it's not the war itself that will sink us. It's the post-war. Post-war? Wendy asked. After we get rid of Saddam, we'll be out of there. I'm afraid I have to agree with Paul here, Danison said. This is the one aspect of all this that's bothered me the most. All the rosy projections by guys like Wolfowitz with very little discussion about post-war plans. Well, I'm sure they are discussing it, Rialto said, just not publicly. 
They've got enough to worry about just trying to convince the world that, well, we don't want to do this. It's a necessary, unavoidable action. Exactly, Wendy said. Now, I gotta get to class. So Lucas bit his tongue because he knew they weren't getting anywhere. He'd made his case if they were no closer to a consensus than they had been at the start of the discussion. If anything, they were further apart. Lucas thought a lot about that conversation, and one thing he kept returning to was how Rialto, Wendy, and McCollum had created a false choice. Either we supported the position of the president and attacked Iraq, or we did nothing. Yet there were usually myriad options available to countries when handling geopolitical issues. Currently, the UN inspectors were working 24-7 to investigate whether Iraq was in compliance with the UN resolutions, so not attacking was not doing nothing. Lucas felt the U.S. and the world had lost an opportunity after the tragedy of 9-11, an opportunity to unite behind the cause of an end to politically motivated violence. In the weeks following that event, for the first time in his life, Lucas witnessed how the American people's consciousness opened up to the horrors that politically inspired violence brought upon everybody. Most people, Lucas included, didn't personally know anyone who died that day, but they still suffered 9-11's psychological pullback. Constant repetition of the images of the planes crashing into the towers and the towers collapsing all but assured that. Looking back on it, Lucas could remember watching candlelit vigils where people from all backgrounds came together. Musicians who before reveled in violence-prone lyrics sang songs of peace, and newspaper headlines from around the world shouted out in solidarity with the United States. For these reasons, Lucas had hoped that the tragedy would catalyze an era of striving for a new global society based on understanding, honesty, interconnectedness, and nonviolence. Such a path had seemed possible at the time, but all that had been squandered. It hadn't taken President Bush and his cronies very long to turn all that emotion into the old world desire for revenge, to get the bastards that did this to us. Of course, Lucas had been supportive of efforts to bring the perpetrators to justice, but he'd felt that should have been a silent sidebar to the main story. After all, the people who had allegedly committed the crime were seeking a war with America, so why give it to them? Why inflate a supposed bunch of radicals living in caves into this menace which threatened to bring down civilization? Perhaps those in power wanted to inflate this enemy so they could have a perpetual war. If so, it was straight from Orwell's 1984. On the home front, it had been less than a year before 9-11 when the American public had been bitterly split into two camps due to the controversial 2000 election. So 9-11 could have been a blessing in disguise that allowed people to transcend those divisions. President Bush had run his 2000 campaign as a uniter, not a divider, and here was his chance to live up to that. But it hadn't taken long before people like Lucas began to realize Bush was motivated by the same tired thinking which had plagued U.S. politics and society for too long. Most people had remained behind Bush in the months following 9-11, but by his 2002 State of the Union, when he coined the phrase Axis of Evil for the countries of Iran, Iraq, and North Korea, Lucas could sense the cracks beginning to split again. So here it was in early 2003, and if anything, those divisions had become even more bitter. Pundits thought this bitterness was about a resurrection of the culture wars of the 1960s, but it was more than that. A chance to build something new and beneficial for all out of the ashes was gone. Though Lucas hadn't followed the 9-11 story closely, 
it had still played a role in inspiring him to fight for Lastrush, as well as Sylvanus because it had made him feel that what he did with his short time on Earth mattered more than before. It was for this reason, more than any other, that Lucas felt compelled to speak out, no matter the consequences. Even though he knew it probably wouldn't stop the march to war, Lucas decided to go with Sylvanus, Danielson, Terry, and Scarlet to an anti-war rally in Seattle on a day in February when millions of people in hundreds of cities around the world would be doing the same, working for peace, despite the odds, seeking that better world that they'd glimpsed the possibilities of in September of 2001, a world they knew was possible, if only enough people believed it and acted on those beliefs. Chapter 11, Get Active. Sylvanus couldn't believe it. Nobody was listening. The Lucas family had spent their Friday night making protest signs, Sylvanus's War is a Crime Against Nature, woke an early Saturday morning to pick up Danielson so they could drive to Seattle, marched through the city's gray, wintry streets with thousands of others, from babies in strollers to grannies with canes, and chanted in unison to dispute the necessity for war. But nobody was listening. Meanwhile, across the country in cities like Los Angeles, Madison, New York, Chicago, and many others, hundreds of thousands had protested in similar marches. Hell, the protests hadn't been restricted to America. The biggest ones were in foreign cities, such as the three million, three million in Rome, all sending a clear message to President Bush, Tony Blair, and anybody else in a position of power that the idea of invading Iraq was a horrid one. Don't do it! And even so, nobody was listening. No matter that the totals worldwide were anywhere from 6 to 10 million people, never mind that it was the first time in history that such a protest had taken place before a war had even started. Never mind all that. They didn't care. President Bush had offered something of a backhanded compliment by saying, Democracy is a beautiful thing, while making his intentions clear. I'm not going to decide policy based on a focus group. So, we are just a stupid focus group, Sylvanus said, throwing the newspaper down. He's a stubborn bastard, Lucas said. And besides, he seeks to avenge his daddy. Is that what this is all about? Sylvanus asked. In part, but it's complicated, Lucas said. There isn't only one reason why Bush thinks invading Iraq is the right thing to do. Well, whatever reason he comes up with, Sylvanus said getting up from the couch. He's wrong. There's got to be some way we can convince him of that. Don't count on it, Lucas said, opening the sports page and sitting down on the couch. Come on, Paul, Sylvanus said. Don't tell me you're giving up. Nah, of course not, Lucas said. I'm just ready for the inevitable. If we do go to war, we've got to live to fight another day. Sylvanus found this a bit cold. What about those who wouldn't live? Those people in Iraq where the bombs were going to fall? Those members of both militaries who were killed. What about them? What's that supposed to mean? He asked. It means not to get so emotionally invested in this particular battle that if we lose, we end up completely dejected, Lucas said. Besides, what else can I do? I don't know, Sylvanus said. It's just such an outrage that something like this can happen in America. Whatever happened to being a beacon of democracy for the world? You're right, Sylvanus, Lucas said. But look at it this way. If we are extremely generous, not even 1% of the population was at that march, and we know a lot more than 1% are opposed to this thing. In fact, it's still a majority of people, despite all the propaganda. That's what I'm getting at, Lucas said. 
Even after being bombarded with propaganda, most people in this country still don't want America to attack Iraq. That gives me hope. There is strength in numbers. The media will attempt to bury this reality, but there it is. So why can't we affect some kind of change in the policy? We're doing our best, Lucas said. My point is, in the past, people in this country believed in protests, marches, and non-violent civil disobedience, and they often motivated or scared politicians into creating new freedoms and justice for people. However, most people today don't believe in the power of mass movements, so the crowd today wasn't all that large. Not like in Rome, where in spite of their government being one of the few countries who support the U.S. position, millions of people still turned out. Americans have become passive, but I don't know if I can blame them. Because even when we do turn out, what good does it do? So we just stay home? No, Lucas said. I may battle cynicism, but I still think there's a purpose to showing up for such marches. They may not succeed in their immediate goals, but they may inspire the next action to succeed. Do you really think so? That's my hope, Lucas said. Why don't we do a thought experiment? Okay, Sylvanus said, feeling like he was a student in Lucas's class. Western Washington's population is around 4 million people, and a majority of them, 60%, is opposed to the war, Lucas began. So, let's imagine half of that 60% decides to go to the protest march. That would be over 1 million people shutting down Seattle. If that happened in every major city in the country, Bush might be forced to listen, just as he is forcing the Iraq civilians to get ready to take cover. So yeah, a real massive protest march might change his mind. Unfortunately, not that many people came out. Not enough to strike fear into Bush, at least. But Sylvanus, I am looking on the bright side, Lucas finished. We did turn up. That was our part. We can possibly be an example to others that even in a time of fear and cynicism, there are still those of us who are going to stand up to this monster that our national government is becoming and tell it to go to hell. Yes, there is more that can be done, but that is my part, for now. If I think of anything I can do that will or might stop this thing, I would do it. Well, we'd better think fast, Sylvanus said. Time's running out. When Lucas went to school at the beginning of March, he stopped talking about the war, except occasionally in private with Danielson. He tried to give some of his co-workers some anti-war articles he'd found on the internet, but at the staff meeting that afternoon, Weinberg announced that because of the emotions the issue stirred, no staff members would be allowed to pass out political articles at work. So Lucas had begrudgingly accepted that nothing good could come from expressing his opinions at work. Sylvanus, though, didn't really have much choice in that matter, his co-workers may as well have worn bomb Iraq cheerleading outfits with red, white, and blue pom-poms. As a result, he spent his days mopping around the mall, occasionally settling disputes between store owners and customers, but mostly doing very little besides protect the place he hated the most. One beautiful, unseasonably warm day in early March, Luke was doing his rounds, permanent frown on his face, when he heard a voice coming from a music store. Get out! Get out! Get out! It was the store's manager. Luke knew this, as he'd sometimes chatted with the amicable man, and as Luke trotted to the door, he lost count how many times the manager repeated that phrase. As Luke arrived, a teen with green streaks in his orange-spiked hair backpedaled toward him while saying, Fuck you! to the manager for every, Get out! Totally oblivious to Luke's presence, the kid crashed right into him, turned around and said, What the fuck? Let him go, Luke, the manager said. That is, unless you want to work him over some. 
Luke had no interest in doing that, but he did want to know what the brouhaha was about. What happened? he asked as the kid, who was all skin and bones, failed to squiggle out of his grasp. This punk was berating my customers, and then me, the manager said. She started it, the kids answered, pointing at a middle-aged woman with a toddler running around her legs. Yeah, right, the manager said. Look, get out and don't bother coming back. Luke thought of holding on to the kid a bit longer, but figured it was the manager's store, so if he didn't want to pursue it, there really was no point. Still, before letting the kid go, he said, I'll be watching you. As soon as the kid was out of Luke's arms, he said, Ooh, I'm scared, and ran off into the mall. Luke was about to give chase, but the manager told him to let it go. Kids like that aren't worth your time. Luke realized the manager was right, so after confirming with the woman that she and her child were okay, he left the store. As he walked around, that phrase, Get out! kept repeating in his mind. He was walking by a bookstore when he saw a beautiful picture of a deep green forest on a photography book in the bookstore's display window. Since he was working, he couldn't go inside and leaf through its pages like he wanted to, so he appeased himself by staring at the cover for a minute or two. The green of the forest had a relaxing effect on him, and suddenly he had an inspiration. Since it was such a nice day outside, why not take his sack lunch out behind the mall for a picnic in the forest? The idea inspired him, and when lunch came an hour later, he exited the mall and rode his bike across the large, mostly empty parking lot to its backside. He had to look a few minutes for a suitable trail into the forest, which was separated from the parking lot by a small strip of grass. He found a spot and, careful not to be seen with a glance over his shoulder, entered the forest. He also had to be cautious about knocking in his uniform dirty, so he didn't go too far. It didn't take long to reach a spot where he was completely surrounded by trees. A log lay on the ground, creating a perfect bench. He sat down and ate his lunch, welcoming the serene ambiance of the forest after spending his morning in the noisy mall. Ah, this was the medicine his dejected spirit had so badly needed. Why did he keep forgetting this? Was he really that busy? No, the voice suddenly came from everywhere. It's because, again, you haven't been paying attention. Here we go again, Sylvanus thought. Yes, here we go, the voice answered. Anyway, congratulations. Congratulations? Yes, congratulations for paying attention today. I was. You got out, didn't you? The voice asked and laughed. That was you? In part, the voice said. Wait a minute, Sylvanus said. The photography book too, right? You got it. How could you do that? As I told you before, I communicate through anything, but if you aren't paying attention... Then it doesn't matter, Sylvanus finished. Precisely. Cooperative effort. Why did you call me out here? Don't you know? The voice asked. Um, not really, Sylvanus said. Been in a bit of a funk lately? Absolutely. And coming out here has helped already, right? Yes. Well, there you go, the voice said. Is that all? Sylvanus asked. That's up to you, the voice replied. Well, even though I don't want to go back to that cursed place, my break is almost over, so... Understood. Look, before you go, do me and yourself a favor. Don't forget this time. The weather's improving, so you no longer have that excuse. Okay, Sylvanus said. I'll be back. I promise. How quickly we forget. It didn't help that the next several days the rains returned along with the cold. But what made Sylvanus forget even more was the war. It had begun. During those final days before it started, 
both Lucas and Sylvanus obsessed over every possible media outlet. One thing that really stunned Lucas was that, contrary to so-called conventional wisdom, there was no consensus from the mainstream media that this was a necessary war, or even that the president was telling the truth. Lucas found many articles using the internet questioning the president and his rationale for war, and it dawned on him how much the world of information was opening up to inquisitive people if they only took the time to look into things. He could remember being in journalism school in the early 1990s, and none of this stuff was so readily available. So why was everybody missing it? Terry suggested that perhaps it was because there was too much information and people were too busy with their lives. What this meant, she said, was what the media put at the front of their broadcasts, newspapers, or websites was what the masses were going to be aware of. And most of that, sadly, was a rallying cry for war. This whole thing is such a fiasco, Lucas said. The thing that sucks the most about it from our perspective is that we can't do a damn thing about it. Well, we can do one thing, Terry said. What's that? Sylvanus asked. Keep speaking up and expressing our doubts and concerns, no matter what happens. A good point, Lucas said. Yeah, but it's risky for some people, Sylvanus said. I've never talked to you guys about this, but the people at my work are almost more for this thing than the Bush people are. It's like this war is going to satisfy some sort of sickness within them. It's a lust for revenge, Terry said. Why do you think the administration has been spending a year or so hinting at or coming right out that Iraq was involved with 9-11? To tell the truth, Lucas said, while I don't think Iraq was behind 9-11, I can't be sure. Still, even if it was, that doesn't justify what we are about to do. The way I see it, when two people are fighting, the only way for the fight to end is for one side to choose to end it. Now, sometimes that's not always wise. But when you are the more powerful of the two parties, I think the onus for peace is more on you because you can do the most damage. Interesting point, Sylvanus said. But I want to ask, do you guys think I should speak out at work? That's not a question we can answer for you, Sylvanus, Terry said. You have to make that decision on your own. She's right, Lucas said. I know I've stopped speaking out about it at work because nobody's listening anyway, and I don't want to lose a job I like just to fight a losing battle. Nah, I'm finding other arenas to go to war in. Yeah, Sylvanus said. I don't think it would do any good. Still, if I change my mind, I'll certainly speak up. I'm afraid, though, I'd just end up even more ostracized than I already am. Yep, that's the cross to bear sometimes, Lucas said. But sometimes we need to bear it.